All right, thanks guys. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hiawatha. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. Thanks for coming today. If you're new, as Ellen was saying before, we... Um, so right today we're starting a new sermon series in the Gospel of John. We'll talk a little bit about uh, it today uh, by means of introduction, but it's going to take, you said 70 weeks, Peter. Did you do the math on that? Because I thought that was low, but eight, it's going to be 18 months. So whatever 18 months is, I guess, week-wise. Um, and if you guys are wondering too, uh, kind of as an aside here to start, why we chose 18 months, because you may have heard the Gospel of John, uh, you know, preached in a different church in two months or maybe five years. Uh, you know, both are fine. So, you know, no judgment either way. Uh, now, there's not really one right way to do it. But if you're wondering why 18 months, um, when it comes to narrative and, you know, books like this in the Bible, like we want to balance between mining for gold in every word, and that takes time, but also the idea that the gospel is a short word. That's a con convictional thing here for us too, that the gospel is not complicated. It's simple and it's short sometimes. And so like when you put those two together, I think out comes 18 months, at least, <laughs> at least for us. So uh, we'll see if it ends up being that. Not all of it's laid out yet, but it's probably going to be right around there, give or take um, a, few, a few weeks. So uh, today's going to be an introduction to the series. It's a bit stage setting. We will preach the first five verses as well, which serves as a prologue of sorts to the Gospel of John. Uh, I think uh, you, some of you have read this before. I know some of you maybe never have. Uh, wherever you're coming from, that's great. Uh, hopefully it'll be fresh today. A uh, couple of asides, though. Uh, if you're wondering who John was, John is one of uh, Jesus' 12 disciples, one of his so-called inner three that Jesus spent a bit more time with, or so it seems, the way the gospel accounts are written. Uh, Peter and James are the other two. Uh, what is the Gospel of John? It is uh, one of the four gospel accounts of the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the four books that begin the New Testament section of the Bible. Uh, and that all tell us of the life and teachings and sufferings of Jesus and all culminate uh, with the resurrection. Uh, traditionally, it's kind of interesting, the, the four gospels were compared to, uh, in, in ancient times, but we do this today as well. It depends on your tradition, I guess. But uh, the four gospel accounts by name were compared to the four living creatures in the Old Testament book of Ezekiel. Uh, so the, the four living creatures there, if you've read this before, are uh, there's a man, a lion, an ox, and an eagle. And uh, John is the eagle gospel. So you might have seen art like this before, whether it's like in stained glass form or ancient art or modern art. It's very common to see John depicted as uh, it, this um, heavenly creature that looks like um, an eagle. And there's reason for that. Uh, it, it's because John has eagle-like characteristics. It, it looks at Jesus' life and ministry from maybe the highest, most heavenly vantage point. Um, I, I think John could be considered the most spiritual gospel as well in that regard. It, it worries less about chronology as if rote history was the main point, but instead it sends a strictly spiritual message. Uh, and all the gospel accounts do this, of course, but John just does it kind of in a unique way. Um, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic gospels, meaning that they share a lot of material, they kind of sound similar, and John is kind of off here on an island uh, in that it tells the story of Jesus um, just from kind of a, a, a different angle. So we'll pick up on a lot of that throughout the series, but I just wanted to share that to begin. If you weren't aware of that, or even if you were, just to remember. And if, if you approach it that way too, as though it is the eagle gospel, uh, the heavenly gospel, the, the spiritual gospel, it'll um, ease some tensions as we go along and maybe answer some questions, uh, even just uh, with, with that. Um, then the third, a third aside is how do we read it? 
Uh, and the answer to that is the same way we read any biblical book. And, and that would be through a Christ-centered lens as though the gospel is somehow the point, whether indirect or direct. And that might sound super obvious because we're talking about a gospel of the New Testament because it's explicitly about the good news of Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection and other things as well. But, but this rule, I would say, is also true for Jesus' pre-cross ministry. And so that just means everything that comes before his death and resurrection is meant to somehow anticipate it and point us ahead to it in kind of maybe a parable-like way or a prediction-like way. Jesus sometimes straight up predicts his death and resurrection. Uh, some of you guys know that, most of you probably. But um, you may not know, though, that a lot of his healings and a lot of his um, other teachings are also meant to do this. His interactions with people, how, uh, even uh, deaths like John the Baptist, the way his death occurs um, is also meant to predict Jesus's. And so, uh, so I would encourage you guys, if this is new or if it's not, to, to really work at this when you read John. Maybe you go home this week and you read it uh, to kind of prepare your hearts and minds for these next 18 months. That'd be great. As you do that, think about this. How, how is everything between John 1.1 and, say, like his arrest, J- Jesus' arrest before his death, how is all of that material somehow preparatory rather than actual? How is the end of the book way more? than the beginning of the book? How do we use the end to interpret uh, the, the beginning? Or as someone has said before, uh, for every one look at the manger, take 10 looks at the cross. And I would slightly change that to say, for every one look at some healing or some teaching of Jesus's before he dies, take 10 looks at the cross. And I think when we do that, we really read it rightly. That's how we should do it. If we balance it out too much, I think we emphasize things that the Bible is maybe not intending, the Gospels are maybe not intending uh, to emphasize or to put as much weight on. Okay, so today is introduction. It'll have a little bit different feel maybe. Uh, That's kind of by design. Like I said before, it's a little bit stage setting. Um, But really all I said before is, uh, it's mostly kind of all I want to do with, in terms of um, those introductory sides. If you want more on how the Gospels were written, how they came together, who was John, when was this written, what time of history, anything like that, uh, or more on authorship. I'd, I'd love to talk to you about that, or if you want um, a book, I could give you a thousand. So um, let me know. All right, so today, though, is John 1, 1 to 5, uh, and we'll read it here in full to begin. If you have a Bible, please turn to that, or a phone app. Turn to that if you'd like to see it, especially in context. Otherwise, I'll throw it up here on screen and And we'll get started. Here we go. John 1, 1 to 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. All right, so a couple, uh, maybe I do have a couple further asides. I think about it. Um, I, I wanted to, I said this first service too, I'll, I'll say it to you guys. I, um, I don't usually have this feeling writing sermons, but I did this week where I, I read this and I just thought, um, should I just read this and just sit down? You know, like, is it really, I actually really struggled. Like, what do you actually say about this? I don't want to muck this up with my lame words, you know. Um, but Jesus does want his word preached. We know that, the, the Lord does, and so we're going to do that. But it is epic, isn't it? Isn't this beginning just like um, big? 
It's a big God theology. It, it goes way back to the very beginning and streams right through into, um, in, as we'll see here uh, next week, his, uh, his baptism and his early ministry. It's just like so big, so mysterious, um, hard to pin down. It's sort of like uh, describing the indescribable is tough, right? Like someone expl- ha- asks you like what it was like to see the Grand Canyon or I went to Devil's Tower in Wyoming a few uh, years ago and someone asked me, I'm driving home from Yellowstone. Should I go there or not? Is it worth it? And I was trying to sell it to him, but I like didn't really know how to talk about it, you know? Like there's this thing and there's these things and you can walk around it on this thing and you just got to go. But I feel like it was just kind of a lame description, you know? I feel like there's, sort, there's some of that sometimes in, in the Bible and especially with uh, prologues or just passages like this that um, have that prophetic bent to it. Um, it's just big. There's an early Christian pastor. Um, he was a bishop uh, named Simplician. And he, uh, in the fifth century, he wrote about John. He uh, commented on it. He said this, though, about the opening passage that we just read. He said, uh, quote, this opening passage should be written in letters of gold and hung up in all churches in the most conspicuous place. And I, you know, I've read a lot of commentaries in my life uh, in preparation for a lot of sermons. I've read a lot of commentaries in different passages and books of the Bible. But I don't think I've ever read anything quite so all in on any passage ever in my life as this statement. There might be some if I had to kind of dig in my brain a bit. But this, is, this really stood out to me. Is like I've never heard anybody um, say, look, we... Aside from the instruction on all churches should do this, because we don't do this, right? We haven't done this. There's no gold plaque. But aside from that, I think the point is this is really important. That this is, if you were to pick out like a handful of verses in the New Testament on Christology, the study of Christ, who is he? What's his mission? Uh, this would certainly be top three, if not the very top of the, of the pyramid of those, uh, of those verses. It's incredibly, incredibly important our understanding here of Jesus being both God and man, his, his mission, um, the early whispers of the gospel that we'll see today, his death on the cross will come up as well. Um, so today what I want to do is um, talk through three thematic angles. I think that's probably the best way to do this. Um, there's a lot here though. Uh, chances are you'll feel or hear something a bit different, um, but I have some, some rambling thoughts uh, on a few things thematically. We'll start with this though. Um, the first theme I think that you see kind of jump off the page is a new creation. Or maybe think something new is happening. Uh, if you read the Bible before, maybe in the prophets too, the old time, you, you know that God likes to announce new things. And this is one of those times where he says uh, something is starting that is noteworthy. Something's beginning here, in this case with the word or with Jesus, that um, we need to pause, just sit down, close our mouths and let it wash over us. Um, but the big thing maybe to note here, observationally maybe, is the first three words, in the beginning, which sounds like what? It sounds a lot like Genesis 1, probably, right? Genesis 1, 1, if you've read that before, where it says, in the beginning also, God made the heavens and the earth. He was there, he spoke, and all things that weren't all of a sudden were. And so John is intending linguistically here to make some kind of connection, mostly because he wants us to see that there's a new creation being put into motion. Uh, Mark's gospel begins kind of similarly. It says, the beginning of the good news, the beginning of the gospel uh, of Jesus Christ. And then he, then he goes on. Those are the first words in, uh, in that gospel. So in the big picture, the Bible is really a tale of two creations. 
There's the first physical creation that Moses wrote about and how it fell away from God through humanity's sin. And then there's the second spiritual creation that pertains to Jesus, to the word of God, the, the God's son, who eternally is this preceding word of love that, uh, that flows from him. Uh, that's the second one. That's the one that, that, that the Bible really goes all in on. It says this is more important. That The first one gives way to the second one. The second one builds off the first one but surpasses it in glory and splendor. The Old Testament prophets saw it, and now the gospel writers here are writing about it in Genesis-like language. So as we go through the book of John, look more for this imagery. Look for how John um, repurposes creation imagery around Christ. That's probably the best way I could put it. Like, how does John repurpose the things that, the Old Testament said about creation in a new kind of spiritual way because he does it all over the place. We'll see a couple examples today actually too, uh, more than this, more than in the beginning. Uh, but look for that because it's, it's very constant. Um, the word who was there in the beginning is now here. I think about it that way. The word who was there in the beginning that was the agent of creation is now here again, but now he's in the flesh. Uh, God is speaking a second time or an ultimate time. And now, now he says, let there be light in our hearts to save us from the darkness within. That, that's an example of how the Bible dials up the idea of, you know, God initially saying, let there be light into the void, the chaos, the darkness. Now he's doing it again. But now, and actually, actually quoting 2 Corinthians 4, 6 here when I say this. So it's, um, it's explicitly biblical. Uh, but now God's saying, let there be light in a new way. He's just calling into the black hole in here. And he's saying, let there be light. And, and there is. And, but the way he does that is very important. We'll come to that later. He doesn't just do it. He does it through Jesus in a very particular um, way. So all that's good news. But I, I would also add what's equally good news is that creation is something that we never have a hand in doing in the Bible. So there's a little bit of a, wow, this is amazing, but also a little bit of a, wow, this is a relief. <laughs> um, John 5.17, we'll come to this and talk more about it in a few months. Jesus says, my father is working until now, and I am working. So do you see the creation language here as well? Because when did God first work? He worked, in the beginning, he worked six days, right? Then he rested. When Jesus says, now I'm working again, this is, again, meant to kind of hearken us back to, the old, to Genesis, but then also, like, bring us into the present, the New Testament, and say, now there's a, a second creation happening here. But in both cases, um, it's not something that we do, right? It, this, is, like, this is good news because Jesus doesn't say, all right, I'm here, I was baptized, and now it's time for you guys to get to work. Like, that's not his message. That's not what this says. Jesus isn't saying, the Father's working, I am working, and now you are equally working. He's saying, just the Father and I are at work. Like, listen to that. Be moved by that. Uh, stand in awe. The Lord is recreating the cosmos again, and he's doing it through his Son. So I would then maybe put a cap on this by saying the gospel is the recreative work of God through Jesus Christ, not our work. And in that, we are new creations of God in Christ. So the Bible, when it talks about new creations, it's not just this like project where the Bible says there's a project of new creation and Jesus is enlisting help for us to make it happen. 
I mean, obviously the church is like an agent in one sense, right? Because he lives within us, but that's a different thing. To say that there's this new creation project happening and that Jesus wants help in it is one thing. It's not really true. It's not really biblical or it's certainly not good news. But it's different, altogether different to say you guys are the new creations. Like, remember, is it 2 Corinthians 5.17 that all who believe in Jesus are new creations in Christ? Like, it's another thing altogether to say you're the project, like, you're the ones he came to redeem. Like, he's not calling into, vo- again, black voids anymore. He's calling into our hearts and saying, let there be light. But there's a lot more grace in that, isn't there? Because you don't have anything to do with that, nor do I. Uh, we're simply the passive recipients of this love and grace that God has for us in his son. And that moves us on to this next facet, which is no us in sight, but a whole lot of Jesus. Let me just read the first four verses again so it's fresh. In the beginning was the Word, and the words was, Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and this life was the light of men. Okay, there's, I, I think, uh, going back to how I sort of uh, set this up before, I, I think there's a lot of thoughts and emotions that might rightly come from this, that this passage might drum up. Uh, so I want to share a few, um, albeit jumbled ones, uh, just from my mind, uh, that um, will probably line up with a lot of yours. But if, again, if there's more, awesome, because there probably are. Um, but this is in no particular order. But this is uh, one of the big ones here, I'll say, kind of an, on an observational level, that Jesus, what this passage tells us is that Jesus was more than a man, right? He was... The word who was not just with God in the beginning, he was God. So before he became a human being, he existed eternally as God's son, as the word uh, for eternity past. He always was. He was not created. Uh, And there are a few places in the Bible where this is more clear. Um, You might look at or think about how John starts in relation to Matthew and Luke, which have birth narratives of Jesus. Um, And how Mark begins with uh, John the Baptist's story uh, almost right off the bat before Jesus was baptized and kind of began with that as well. But John goes way before all those events. And, and his prologue here makes it clear that this is, this is not the origin story of a guy. You know, we're not just, we, we, John's actually said he's not, he wasn't born, even though Jesus of Nazareth was, right? The word was never created, never had a beginning. And so John's saying this, this is not the origin story of a moral teacher or a prophet, This is a statement of the eternality of the divine Christ, the word. It's that big. And uh, and so from that then, actually, if you look to it, how John writes, uh, it is this, but it's more. It's also that Jesus was the reason all things ran. This is where things get really trippy, almost philosophical. But this is is where it says Jesus was um, the reason things uh, for which all things were made. Uh, all things were made through him, it says, right? Colossians 1.16, uh, similar language, it says, for in Jesus all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, powers, rulers, authorities, all things have been created through him, and here's maybe the kicker, and for him, for his purpose. And I, I think that last idea, as it links with John, this is a big part of Christology, but this has massive implications, huge. We could spend all day on this. 
massive implications for our lives, for how we look at Christ, how we live, how we read the Bible, how we look at creation. But notice that he references people here, uh, right? He, um, it's, it's alluded to, because all things include us, right? We're part of all things, human beings. <clears throat> but Colossians 1.6 makes it clear when it says things like rulers and authorities and, and thrones, right? So he's talking about people. Um, we were made through him, but not just through God in a generic sense. Like, it's not wrong to say God made us. That's wonderfully true, right? But it's um, better or maybe more precise to say that we were made through Jesus and for his purposes. And uh, I'd encourage you guys to, to think about, I mean, think about that now, but think about that throughout this series. Think about that today. You guys were made through Jesus before you even knew him. Uh, Christians, we would say in, in a heightened way, maybe we were remade or saved through Jesus, right? So that's a kind of a special way of understanding this uh, for Christians. But there's a lot of grace in these things. The, the idea that we're made through Jesus and not that Jesus is a standard for us to measure our life against uh, is full of hope and, and full of grace, uh, it might lead you to thoughts like, man, if this is true, then my life is not my own. I don't own it. Like, the world might tell you own it, right? And it's up to you to make the most of it. And um, you have to decide everything about your identity and about who you are. The Bible says it flies in the square face of that. And it says, no, God determines everything, you know, for you. Like, you were made for a purpose much bigger than you can ever imagine, it's a, and it's a glorious purpose. Maybe the thought is, I'm a part of something bigger than myself. I know a lot of people's uh, conversion stories start with something like that, uh, where the, what attracts them to biblical Christianity is just the story, that there's a, a meta-narrative, a story going on that they're somehow a part of, they never thought they were, and it's much bigger than all of their hopes and, and ambitions and plans and um, agendas and other beliefs. It's much bigger and, and much better. Or maybe the thought is, I'm less autonomous than I thought I was. And that can be good or bad news, right? If you guys, when you hear that, maybe it's a bit of both, I don't know. Um, but you're not autonomous. Like, there's someone else in control of your life. And that, that um, if those of you who are sick of being autonomous, that's probably hope, right? If, if you love being in control of your life, that's probably bad news. Um, but the, the reality is it's probably a little bit of both uh, for, for all of us at various points in, in our life. Um, maybe it's not up to me anymore. Maybe the gospel isn't about me, nor is it about me preparing my defense before God as if it all depended on my words and what I had to say to a world or I had to say before God. Maybe I'm not speaking at all in this gospel. Maybe the gospel's less about what you say and more about what God says, so he's less silent than you thought he was. Maybe that's the path we take. But maybe, again, it has more to do with God speaking to me with his word of grace. You know, if you understand, if you were to understand salvation in, in like, the picture of a conversation with God, um, I would say this, in the conversation of salvation that God had with us through Jesus, he spoke first and he spoke last. 
And we just smiled and wept with joy as we listened. Like, that's your story. That's what John 1 is hinting at. Um, He spoke before we did. He spoke instead of us. We don't defend ourselves and make excuses and self-justify with our words. Um, We listen to his love, spoken from eternity past through Jesus. And that leads to this third thing, which is Jesus at the start, uh, not us. Uh, The Bible says, in the beginning was Jesus, not in the beginning was you. I think we actually started our Genesis series that way too, if I remember right. It's been like uh, six years or something, Peter, something like that. I believe we did that, and, and, but whatever, it doesn't matter. I'll say it again, even if we did. Because uh, all of you, I'm sure, remember that seven years ago. Oh, yeah, it was right there. No, um, I, I don't either. But the, the, Bible, the Bible begins with, in the beginning, God. The gospel begins with, in the beginning, Jesus. Not in the beginning, you. And not in the beginning, your works. That's not how the gospel begins or ends. It's much less to do with us than than we think sometimes. Uh, Or I'll say it this way. The gospel predates your works. It does not come in response to them. That's huge. The gospel predates your works. It doesn't come in response to how many of them you do. Or here's an encouraging thought, I hope. God doesn't need you. And I don't know, I I said this first service too, I don't know, um, I don't know if like many of you, I don't know if you need to hear that or not. I'm guessing some of you do. I I read a a book in college. um, I won't really talk about it that much uh, here. But I read a book that implied that God does need us, need our prayers. um, And it uh, it was trash theology. It was trash. I read trash theology, I guess, in college, but it's part of my journey. Um, that this theology that God um, does need us somehow. And that's different than saying God uses us, right? Of course, he uses the church as a conduit. That's different. Um, but to say God needs you, and so I, I just want to liberate you. If that's at all like a thing you're entertaining, just I would say stop believing it today. Make today the first day that you stop believing that. Because of this, because of John 1, God doesn't need us. Um, like, uh, I also said, like, this thing came to mind this week of, of parenting. Like, Aletha and, I, Aletha and I didn't decide to have kids because we wanted more people to do the dishes at night. You know? Like, oh, man, I just, I hate mowing the lawn. Let's have a baby. You know? But that's, that's, that's never the, the thought, right, that goes into, or shouldn't be. Or, you know, uh, pa- like, parents aren't... Um, like a baby doesn't come out of the womb and start talking and say, you know, okay, dad, you know, I'm here or something, right? Or like, um, what can I do like for you today? Like that's not, that never happens, right? That's a weird image. But, um, but the, the, the thing is, it's the same with God. Like he, he made us out of love through Christ. He didn't make us for utilitarian purposes. He and his love and his word and his son, and his gospel, and his grace, and his love predates all your works ever, done in Christ or outside of him, done with good motive or impure, predates and therefore is better than, more important, not on equal footing. It's very important to understand that for the sake of our mental health, at the very least, 
but for our theology as well of what is the gospel. Uh, Romans 9, 10 to 12 says, um, and not only so, but this is an Old Testament story in the book of Genesis. When Rebekah conceived children with Isaac, verse 11, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older Esau will serve the younger, Jacob. And so there's a lot going on here uh, that I'm not going to spin off on today for time, but um, this, is, this again deals with the issue of chronology, right? He's saying this choice of God to pour out love on somebody and to save someone uh, happened before that person did anything good or bad. Did anything moral whatsoever. So how could it be about works? How could your, this is your story too and mine. How could your salvation be about anything about what you do if the choice was made before you existed? If God's love was, his word was already somehow there beginning to call out to you. Um, the Bible calls this predestination in other books. That there is a, um, a predetermined love, a, you know, an initial cause uh, a prevenient grace, another phrase we use in uh, theology sometimes. Um, lots of words for it, biblical and also just uh, theological for it. But this is very important. It's hard to understand, but it's crystal clear that your salvation has nothing at all to do with your works, good or bad. God's eternal choice to save us predated all of our deeds. Again, whether moral or immoral. And that can be offensive, that can be trippy, that can be, I don't get it, but that should also be joy-giving. Because that means something for you today. Like God's posture towards you is not changing because of what you did or didn't do, what you're involved with or what you're not involved with, how activistic you are or not, what causes you rally around, what you posted or not, how much you love the church or didn't. None of that. It's completely and totally predating of all of it. So although you may have a plan for some of it, the center of, of the gospel um, is such that it is, uh, it is predating all those things. It's in Christ. Okay. The last section is the light of the darkness. Let's read verse 5. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. I'll start by making one more uh, two creation motif observation and then... Um, come to the, the big point here. But the first observation is just to say, like, when you read this, and if you know how the first creation went, uh, verse 5 makes this creation tale sound like it's going to go differently than the first one, right? So back in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, or chapter 3, I guess, uh, it says, Eve took of the fruit that she wasn't supposed to and ate it and gave some to her husband, and he ate, and sin came into the world. And then immediately their eyes were opened and they realized they were naked and they hid themselves from God. And then God says, what have you done? And then judgments and curses and exile from the garden came and then right on the heels of that, Cain murders Abel and all hell breaks loose. So that's how the first creation begins, right? Uh, right when people get involved, that happens. Right when a command comes to not eat from the tree, that's what happens. Uh, commands incite disobedience all throughout the Bible. Uh, think of Jonah as well, right? Go that way, 
and preach to the Ninevites. Great. He goes that way, right? Instant disobedience. When God commands, we go the other way. This is uh, partly what's going on here. The first creation failed because it was built on a commandment. But where, where the first creation failed, the second will succeed because it's not built on a commandment that's bent on you. It's built on Jesus. It's built on his son. It's built on a creative act of God that human beings have never been a part of, whether the first one or the second one. It's built on his grace. And so that's kind of what you get here with verse 5, is you get this sense that, wow, this seems like it's going to go different. Or if you've never read it before, maybe you don't, we don't know yet, but it seems to be, right? The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Okay, but then there's a twist, all right? I'm kind of alluding to this as we, we've been going here, but there's a twist in verse, verse 5. For me, this is, um, with all of John 1, 1 to 5, this historically for me has been, this kind of like, sort of like a sticking point grammatically and syntactically, um, but there's a reason for it, all right? So when you read that the light shines in the darkness and then the darkness has not overcome it, it's interesting he wrote it that way because it could, he could have said the light shines in the darkness and the light overcame the darkness, right? Or the light won or something like that. To put the light more in the proactive role, does that make sense? But the light here is more in the passive role. Like the, the darkness is seeking to overcome, but the light is standing its ground, basically, right? You see how that's kind of working itself out linguistically? It's kind of odd. But it's very important because what does that imply? What does verse 5b imply about the darkness? And I kind of said it, but it implies that the darkness is chasing the light. It's seeking to overcome the light, right? Or else this wouldn't be written this way. The darkness is kind of like here, at least, in the active role. You get a sense that the darkness is trying to overcome this word, this light. And so the twist here is five verses into John, we're already learning that this word, this light, would have a life marked by being pursued and chased, ultimately to the cross. And the twist is that the way that the light of the new creation shines grace into our souls is by being overcome by the darkness on the cross. We might say, impossibly, scandalously, somehow that happens, but it does. Uh, Jesus' words uh, themselves were, darkness is going to have its hour. Right? Remember when he said that? Darkness is going to have its hour before he, before he died. Or what happened when Jesus was on the cross? Luke 23. It was about noon and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon for the sun literally went out. The sun stopped shining. Even at midday. And so that I think is the scandal. That is the the hint of the twist coming is that this light is unstoppable and yet it's being chased. Why? What's, what's in the chase? Why is darkness kind of having a moment there of even being able to chase at all? It sounds like, how could the eternal word even allow for that? Oh, but he did. He allowed for it because he wanted to die for you and save you. He didn't have to. 
The covering of the light had purpose. And I think this is where the scandal is. Uh, Light is never overcome by darkness. And darkness is a fleeting, powerless evil in the face of God. And yet God, quote, was made a little lower than the angels. Remember this in Psalm 8 and Hebrews 2, I think. Jesus was the ultimate human being. He was made a little lower than the angels. He was condescended. His glory was not um, changed in a sense, but it was lowered somehow. He, he became low. Not becoming what he wasn't, but kind of becoming uh, something different by taking on flesh. He was made a little lower than the angels, like us. And he gave up his light. He gave up his glory for the sake of being overcome so we might not be. Or think about it this way. Uh, recreate, and this is actually, this will be a huge theme probably throughout the series. Recreation comes at great cost to God. That's what I want you guys to hear today. Uh, lots of things. But recreation is not just something that God just does. Like he just says, okay, we're just going to recreate. There has to be a cost because we've been driven so far away from him. We're so lost. We're so far gone. We're so dead. We're so much his enemies. And it's right for him to send us to hell. It's right for us to have an eternal punishment away from him. There has to be a cost. Recreation comes at a great cost to God. Not to you. There's nothing you can ever spend to get it. That's the good news, right? God spent it. God paid it all to recreate us away from our sin. And so uh, Matthew 4, 16, another, another gospel sort of begins with this imagery, which is why I'm going here. But um, the people living in darkness have seen a great light, speaking of Jesus. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Or again, to say it differently, the unovercomable light somehow became overcome for us and brought light to our darkened hearts. Jesus actually died. His light was snuffed out. And he was buried for three days. But then he burst forth from that tomb, never to be quenched again. Right? There's a reason why he rose at dawn. Another way to say this would be, or to kind of summarize, without him, nothing was made. That's John 1 which is the exact same thing as saying, without him, nothing is saved. And my, uh, I, I want to invite you guys to this myself as well. I think this is something to kind of go back to um, the, the quote we started with. I, I would say, inscribe the truths, uh, inscribe these truths on the gold tablet of your heart, right? Just remember these things, write them down, um, believe in them. And, and you'll be saved. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much uh, for this passage. Thank you, for the, the, um, thank you so much for John's prologue. Thank you that it differs from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, thank you that all four Gospels have the death and resurrection of Jesus. Only two have the birth of Jesus, um, which tells us they're not as important. But all four have the most important thing. All four agree that Jesus was God that he willingly laid out his life, that he was the light who was overcome, that the author of life, who could never be killed, allowed himself to be. 
so that we might be saved. Um, and, and then he rose again on that third day to give us victory over death and the hope of eternal life. So, um, God, I pray for our journey this, uh, th- this next year and a half that you would truly bless it. And by bless it, I mean that you would just show up in the words, that you'd surprise us every Sunday by something we didn't expect to see, a word from you we didn't expect to hear, and that we'd leave happier and more mature Uh, having deeper knowledge about the gospel and not graduating from it. Um, See now, all things were made for you. Every single word of John was made for you. Every single word was made for the purpose of Christ. Every single word of the Bible uh, was made through Jesus and for his purposes, for the the purpose of the gospel. Um, God, I pray those things would just, again, ring true and meaningful in our ears Uh, as a church, um, and yeah, just uh, be with us today. Help us to respond now in worship and communion just in a, uh, a, a glad way. In Christ we pray, amen.